Let's turn together in our copies of God's Word to Colossians chapter 3. Looking this evening at verses 3 and 4 especially. As we come to the Word of God, let us go to the Lord together in prayer. Our great God, we bow before You in humility, in adoration, and in utter deep dependence. For we are poor sinners, we are poor creatures who could have no good apart from You. And we hold out the empty hands of faith, begging that You would fill us that you would cause us to see Jesus Christ crucified, raised, reigning, and returning in the pages of his life-giving word now. Work convicting, converting power in the preaching of your word, and work comforting, conforming, transforming power in the same preaching of your word, that sinners would come to Jesus Christ and saints would grow in his grace. We can ask all these things of a great God, for you have purposed to do us good for your glory in Jesus Christ. We ask all these things in his blessed name. Amen. Please stand and let us read together Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. This is the Word of God. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Dear congregation, as you are confronted by your own remaining corruption and discouraged by it, as you are beset with many weaknesses and all the assaults of the evil one, come with me and drink deeply of the fountain of grace that is yours in Jesus Christ, yours right now for your comfort and encouragement in him. We saw last time that Resurrection with Jesus Christ is the controlling thought in verses 1 through 4. That's why we're continuing this evening in part 2 of that, seeing how Paul unpacks these things in verses 3 and 4. When Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, Paul is emphasizing here that not so much that Jesus did that for us on our behalf in a separate manner, though all that is true and Paul unpacks those things in other places, Paul's thought here is not that Christ was raised for you, but that you were raised with him in his resurrection. So close, so tight, and inseparable is the believer's union with Jesus Christ. It permeates this passage. Let it permeate our lives here below. So let us pick up where we left off last time and begin in verse 3 with that opening thought in verse 3, for you have died. Paul can go back and forth between resurrection with Christ and death with Christ because Jesus Christ in all of his work, 
in both his estates of humiliation and exaltation are for you, believer, and all that he did for you, you did with him, and it benefits you now and forever. Verse 3, you have died. That is a completed action. And Paul is unpacking here more what he mentioned earlier in chapter 2, verse 20 and following. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, to the this-worldly regulations that the Colossians were dealing with? Here and in other parts of his letters, Paul presses home to the, the believer the freedom that union with Christ in his death brings. Romans chapter 6, the believer's death with Christ in his death means freedom from sin's enslaving power and lordship. The chains of sin, the, the lordship of sin over your heart and life that compelled you to do nothing but sin, union with Christ in his death frees you from sin's lordship. Romans 6 verse 2, How can we who died to sin still live in it? That's one aspect of the freedom that death with Jesus Christ in his death brings. In Galatians especially, Paul brings out how death with Christ means freedom from the law. Now, as we've already seen in Colossians, as we'll see more in the latter half of chapter 3, the law is the delight of the believer as we've been set free to keep the law in humble gratitude and as the, as the guide of our, of our life in communion with God. But Paul does emphasize elsewhere in his epistles the freedom that the believer has from the law in these ways. The believer is free from the law as a covenant of works. That is to say that it is not up to you to keep the law to earn your right standing with God. You do not Come to God in the merits of your own law-keeping. Since as a sinner that is utterly impossible, union with Christ in his death frees us from that, from that liability because Jesus has kept the law in fullness for us and his obedience is transferred to you and it is not up to you to keep the law for your right standing and your eternal inheritance before God. We are freed from the law it, with respect to its curse as well. Another reason it's impossible for us to earn eternal life by our law-keeping, we have broken that law. And the curse of the law means that there is a penalty that must come to lawbreakers, eternal conscious torment for breaking the law of the eternal and infinitely holy God. But praise God, our Savior Jesus has taken that curse upon himself and because he has exhausted that penalty, has died in our place and suffered the condemning wrath of God in our place and for our sakes, we no longer are under the curse of the law, but know the law only as blessing and guide and friend in communion with God. We're also, especially in Galatians 3 and 4, union with Christ in his death has freed us from the time of the law, by which I mean the entire Old Covenant period from Moses to the coming of, of Jesus. That's a big issue here in Colossians as well, that we are free as New Covenant believers from the time of the law, the Old Covenant, so it is not, it is not re required of us anymore to practice circumcision, 
Passover or any of the other things that pointed forward to the coming of Jesus because Jesus fulfills all these things. Union with Christ and his death means freedom from all the bad parts of the law in these ways. And mentioning what we um, saw a second ago from Colossians 2.20 and following, Paul mentions in this epistle that our death with Christ and his death means we are freed from any sort of obligation that comes from human tradition that is the well-intentioned idea of sinful, fallen man. So, just this one aspect of the, of the riches of union with Jesus Christ here already in verse 3, we can see that whatever is of this sin-cursed world, whatever originates from merely human tradition, whatever man insists upon that you must do or be or practice to, to come into God's presence, union with Christ in his death has freed the believer from all this and more. When Christ died upon the cross, his death was not only for you to pay for your sins, to exhaust the wrath of God and bear the curse against you upon himself in your place, his death also meant that you died with him, and his death means you are freed from all the negative aspects of life in this sin-cursed world. Union with Christ in his death means freedom for you, believer. And as good as that is, there is more. Moving on in verse 3. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. So union with Christ in his death means freedom to a new life. This is unpacking, uh, Paul is unpacking here in verse 3 what he began with in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So here Paul, Paul is zeroing in on not just union with Christ in his death, but union with Christ in his resurrection as well. There in verse 1, because Christ has been raised and ascended into heaven, we are oriented toward that realm. Because Christ is there, we set our minds on the things where he is, the things that are in line with and accompany heaven. So, just to summarize what we've seen thus far, union with Christ in his death and resurrection means freedom from being ruled by anything that characterizes this sin-cursed world and freedom to a new life as a citizen of God's heavenly kingdom. So, all this is an elaboration of what Paul's already mentioned back in chapter 1, in verse 13, how God the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness, union with Christ in his death has freed us from that domain, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, union with Christ in his resurrection, has freed us to that newness of life, that new citizenship, that new heavenly citizenship. So back in chapter 3, verse 3, Paul shows us more about our our new life, there in verse 3, our life is hidden with Christ in God. What a glorious statement. May my poor reflections encourage the believer in what is yours in Jesus Christ. Verse 3, your life has been hidden. That means it has been placed somewhere, and though unseen, it remains there right now. 
Your life is a reality, believer, because, verse 1, you've been raised with Christ. So that should be clear from what we've already seen. You've been raised with Christ, so your life is wrapped up in, is hidden with Christ. Now this life, Paul's emphasizing here in verse 3, is hidden, it is unseen to mortal eyes. But don't, don't make the mistake of thinking that it is ethereal, that it is impersonal, that it is abstract. Just because you cannot see it does not mean it is not real. It is unseen by the world. It is unappreciated by the world. It is mocked by the world. But none of that means anything because your life is real, though hidden. Your life has been hidden, notice, because Christ himself is hidden. Where, where is Jesus Christ right now? Ver, verse 1, he is seated at God's right hand in heaven. Your life is intimately wrapped up with, is intimately associated with Jesus Christ raised and ascended. So put it this way, your life believer is real because Christ has been raised, but your life is hidden because Christ is ascended to heavenly glory. He is now unseen, but he is still really raised and really seated at the right hand of God to be worshipped and glorified for his perfect obedience upon earth. And because of what he has done and because of where he is, your life is wrapped up in him in his exaltation to heaven. Now we're starting to see something of, of the significance there in verse 3 of our life being hidden with Christ in God. I know of no comparable statement to this wonderful statement in the rest of God's Word, that your life believer would be hidden with Christ in God. This is to show at the very least that you believer have come up close and personal with the triune God in Jesus Christ. Just as back in chapter 2, we have died with Christ, our life now is with Christ. Whether in his death or in his resurrection, you are wrapped up with Jesus Christ. It is impossible that you believers should contemplate yourself for a moment apart from Jesus Christ and his saving significance as Lord and Savior. You who were far off from God because of your sin have now been brought into the closest communion with God in Jesus Christ. This is the language of the psalmist and the language of the psalmist in a greater way because of its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The longing of the psalmist brought to fulfillment in the obedience of our Savior. Think about Psalm 27, 4 and 5. One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Did you hear, hear there how the psalmist is talking about being hidden and dwelling in the presence of his Lord and Savior? Also, Psalm thirty-one twenty, In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men, 
You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. So both those psalms emphasizing what Paul is unpacking here, that even though our life is hidden, where is it hidden? It is hidden in the closest possible communion with God himself. It is for that reason that our our life is in complete safety because it's in heaven where God is and there is nowhere safer for anyone to be. This is the same kind of thing Paul has mentioned already up to this point back in Colossians 1 verse 5, making reference there to our, our hope laid up for us in heaven. Our hope, our life is there in heaven where Christ is raised and ascended. Then uh, further on in Colossians 1, uh, verse 12 and following, making reference to our share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We saw um, earlier from verse 13, that inheritance is a kingdom inheritance. And what is central in a kingdom? The king, our, our king, Jesus Christ. And even though our life is unseen and hidden, it is intimately wrapped up with our king, Jesus Christ, And even though we can't see it, it is real, and it is glorious, and it is ours even now. Our our heavenly inheritance, our heavenly life, though it is hidden, is what Jesus himself talks about in Matthew 6, how our treasures are in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. So the fact that your life believer is hidden with Christ in God— means what Christ himself says, that it it will not waste away from moth nor rust. It is not liable to mortality and breaking down and losing value. And it is a place where no thief can break in and steal to make it his own, taking it from you. It is in the completely most safe place imaginable. It is locked up in an otherworldly vault for you. It's what Peter talks about in 1 Peter 1, how the believer has been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And Peter goes on there in in the first chapter of of his first epistle to emphasize not only is your life inheritance kept in heaven for you, but you are kept for it. So that it is impossible that you should show up and it not be there, or that you should not show up and it would still be there and be for someone else. The inheritance is kept for you, and you are kept for it. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. The world does not see your life. You and I do not see it, at least in fullness, yet. But if you are in Christ, believer, please appreciate this. You have a richness, an inheritance, a life beyond your wildest imagination. And Paul does not stop there. Moving on in verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So let's just trace out this this life, this theme of, of life so far. What have you noticed, believer, about your life here in this passage? Verse 1, you have been raised with Christ, that is resurrection life already in his resurrection. 
Verse 2, you are to live out that life by focusing on the realm of that life of heaven. You are to be heaven-oriented and heaven-directed even as you are heaven-fed and heaven-compelled even in your earthly pilgrimage. Verse 3, we just saw, our life is hidden with Christ in God. All of that so far could make us, could lead us to believe that our life is something separate from Christ. It's given to us by Christ. It's a gift conferred to us by Him, but maybe it's somewhat separate from His person and His work. Just as I can give you some money and it, it would be separate from me. But we, that, what Paul says here in verse 4 removes all doubt to show that our life is wrapped up intimately, personally with Jesus Christ in verse 4 to say what? Christ is your life. He is your life. Not that Christ gives you life. That's true in a sense. He is your life, believer. This is, the, <clears throat> this is even better than the best, even the God-given gift of union and communion, the gift of marriage. What, what do we know about marriage from, from God's Word? Genesis 2, Ephesians 5, and other places. It is a mystery, Paul says in Ephesians 5, of a one-flesh union where two are made one. Not that each personality is fused into the other. Husband and wife do not morph into each other. Distinction of personality is maintained. But it is the closest union imaginable in this life. What we see here in verse 4, summarizing all that we've seen up up, um, to this point in this paragraph, is that union with Christ is a bond, a bond of communion that transcends even marriage, even the God-given institution of marriage. You see, with marriage, there is no justification for me to say, Ellie is my life, or that she, for her to say, Adam is my life. And the bond of marriage will be severed in death. But this bond of union with Jesus Christ is a bond that cannot be severed because Jesus has died to make it unseverable. It is a bond that cannot be severed because Jesus Christ cannot die again as raised from the dead. It is just as impossible for you, believer, to be separated from Christ as it is for Christ to be dethroned and to die again. This bond of union with Jesus Christ transcends even the God-given institution of marriage. It transcends the institution of marriage also in saying that the, even though we are not Christ and Christ is not us, we are the saved and He is our Savior, and that is never reversed or reversible, the intimacy is more intimate in this bond of union because Christ does not just give you life, He is your life, believer. Paul speaks this way in in multiple places. Put put this all together. Philippians 1.21, 
For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Not for me to, to live is to serve Christ, that, that's good and, and true and noteworthy. For me to live is Christ. Galatians 4.19, speaking to the, to the Galatians in false teaching there, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until what? Christ is formed in you. The part of the, the sadness, Paul's sadness of the, the Galatians being under the false teaching of the Judaizers of adding works to faith in Christ is that they were living in such a way that Christ was not being formed in them. They were giving themselves to the immaturity and the foolishness and the sin of the Judaizers. Being, Christ being formed in you, that is part of the believer's identity. Or Ephesians 4.20, as Paul tells them, that is not the way you learned Christ. Do we ever, do we ever think and speak this way? Not learning about Christ, though that has its place, Learning Christ. Again, the closest, most intimate association of Christ and the Christian in the Christian's union with him. Galatians 2, 19 and 20. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So there, at the very least, Christ lives in me. I am united to him. And without one morphing or fusing into the other, distinction of personal identity retained, Christ is in me, I am in him, and he has not only given me life, he is my life. He is what I live for. He is my strength and my song. Union with Christ brings you, believer, into the deepest bond of fellowship with him, deeper than any other bond that even God himself has given in this life. While remaining the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God, he gives himself to us in a bond of union that can never be severed. This is the, fu- the fulfillment of, again, the psalmist's longing. Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 2514. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. That is the essence of of covenant fellowship with God and Jesus Christ, not just of master and slave, though that is true, not just of husband and wife, father and son, whatever other image we can, we can give to, to show the glory and the richness of this bond, it is also that the unchangeable God, the God who is in need of nothing and no one, would give himself as friend to poor sinners such as us. Perhaps ultimately in Psalm 73, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion 
my inheritance forever. From behold, those who are far from you will perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So do you see the, the theme here? Do you, do you see what, is, what, what runs through all of this? That Christ is your life. It is about nearness unto and basking in the glorious presence of the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Not so much to receive things from him, though as helpless and hopeless sinners, we need things from him. But in giving us the things that we need, in giving giving us even the benefits of salvation, he is giving us himself. It is about person-to-person fellowship that is the essence of union with Christ in the covenant of grace. Augustine captured this in his, in his confessions. Listen to this unpacking of, of Christ being your life. When Augustine says, Who then are you, my God? What I ask but God, who is Lord? For who is the Lord but the Lord? Or who is God but our God? Most high, utterly good, utterly powerful, most omnipotent, most merciful, and most just, deeply hidden, yet most intimately present, perfection of both beauty and strength, stable and incomprehensible, immutable and yet changing all things, never new, never old, making everything new and leading the proud to be old without their knowledge, always active, always in repose, gathering to yourself but not in need, supporting and filling and protecting, creating and nurturing and bringing to maturity, seeking even though to you nothing is lacking, you love without burning, you are jealous in a way that is free of anxiety, you repent without the pain of regret, you are wrathful and remain tranquil, you will a change without any change in your design, you recover what you find yet have never lost, never in any need, You rejoice in your gains. You are never avaricious, yet you require interest. We pay you more than you require, so as to make you our debtor, yet who has anything which does not belong to you? You pay off debts, though owing nothing to anyone. You cancel debts and incur no loss. But in these words, what have I said? My God, my life, my holy sweetness. What has anyone achieved in words when he speaks about you? Yet woe to those who are silent about you, because though loquacious with many words, they have nothing to say. And this, this is, the, this is the, <clears throat> the, the feeling I'm having right now to try and articulate something of these glories now. What can we possibly say about the infinite depths of riches that are ours in union with Jesus Christ? All of this shows that as amazing as what we have in Christ now is, our heart's longing is that our life would no longer be hidden, but revealed. That's what we see in the rest of, of verse 4, that Christ, who is our life, when He appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So as we look back to union with Christ 
in his death, which frees us from sin. Union with Christ in his resurrection, which gives us newness of life. Union with him in his ascension, which brings us to God. We are united not just to the Christ who has died, been raised, who is reigning, but also to the one who is coming. And notice the link, the inseparable binding of Christ to the Christian there in verse 4. As we've already seen, he is our life. And his appearance at the end of history means the appearance of our life with him in glory. So that what we have now hidden will be openly and publicly revealed. What you have now, believer, unseen, you and all creation will see at his blessed coming. What you have that is, that is unseen to eyes is present to faith, and it will be present openly and publicly when he is revealed and brings in the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells, that where he is, you may be also. This is the, this is the, the longing <clears throat> fulfilled in what we see in Song of Solomon and in Revelation. Think about the, the lovers in Song of Solomon. He and she go back and forth. Husband and wife go back and forth in, in praising one another, in desiring one another. There is obvious distance between them. There is obvious distance that they want to close to be with each other. And how does Song of Solomon end? Song of Solomon ends with the bride saying, Make haste, my beloved. And in the book of Revelation... It is not the bride, but the bridegroom who responds, saying, Surely I am coming soon. So, this long distance relationship that we have right now, better than nothing, Christ himself is not satisfied with it. He will come to get, to get his bride, to bring her to his banqueting table, that we may see him face to face and dine with him in that glorious heavenly banquet where he will be our all and all. That is what will happen at the coming of Christ at the end of this age. He will be unveiled from heaven, and the life that is ours with him, the life, he who is our life, will be unveiled in glory. Glory there is significant. What is the, what, what is the, what do we have now instead of glory? We have suffering. This is Romans eight seventeen, That the proof of our adoption, of our belonging to God, knowing him as our father and belonging to him as, our, as, as his children in Jesus Christ, the proof of our adoption now is suffering with Christ. But that is inseparably joined to the future when we will receive not suffering, but glory with Christ. So the revelation here in verse 4 of our life in glory means that our suffering will have come to its fruition and fulfillment. This life is cross-bearing. The life to come is reception of crown. This life is suffering with Christ. The life to come is glory with Christ. This life is, is life hidden in heaven. The life to come is that same life open and displayed publicly and exposed 
for us to see and for us to enjoy in fullness when we see him face to face. So to put this all together, verses 1 through 4, have you noticed that Paul cannot talk about the Christian without talking about Christ? When Christ died, you died with him. When Christ rose from the dead, you were raised with him. When Christ ascended into heaven, he took you there to bring you near unto God. And even though this is not seen by us, even though we have not witnessed any of these things with our own eyes, don't let that lead you to believe that this is a metaphor or religious propaganda. This is all gloriously true of you because Jesus has done this all for you. And when Christ comes in glory, all that you have in him now will be openly and publicly revealed. What is hidden will be unveiled. Bodily resurrection will match up with the resurrection life that is already yours and the core of your being now. No more remaining corruption in your heart. And that open unveiling of your life will include that new environment, the new heavens and new earth, where we will dwell with God to glorify and enjoy Him fully and in perfection. So believer, don't think about yourself apart from Christ. Paul can't do it. Never think about yourself apart from who you are in Jesus Christ. What do you see in yourself? Sin and suffering, not, not measuring up. Get in line. That's all of us. In ourselves, we are worse than we know. But in Christ, we are infinitely, gloriously rich. And that's only the beginning. It will be greater when we see him face to face. This is all summarized wonderfully for us in Larger Catechism 90. And with this, I close. What shall be done to the righteous of the day of judgment? At the day of judgment, the righteous, being caught up to Christ in the clouds, shall be set on his right hand, and there openly acknowledged and acquitted, shall join with him in the judging of reprobate angels and men, and shall be received into heaven, where they shall be fully and forever freed from all sin and misery, filled with inconceivable joys, made perfectly holy and happy, both in body and soul, in the company of innumerable saints and holy angels, but especially in the immediate vision and fruition of God the Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Spirit to all eternity. And this is the perfect and full communion which the members of the invisible church shall enjoy with Christ in glory at the resurrection and day of judgment. And may God add his blessing to his church in hearing the preaching of his word. Amen.